Luke chapter 22. A few years ago, several years ago now, I gave this illustration from the pulpit about this very traumatic time in our family where our dog, Rocky, when he was a pup, got into a um, nest or a den of baby bunnies in our yard. And he came to our back porch and triumphantly in victory and I'm sure wanting praise and honor, dropped a baby bunny at our feet. And it was like a baby, like baby bunny, right? It's still, and uh, we were like, our kids were young, traumatized, like, what do we do? It's got a puncture mark in its neck. From Rocky's a big dog, right? And so I, I'm like, this bunny is on its way out. And the kids are like, dude, should we take you to the vet? We're like, no, it's not going to matter, right? It's, what do you do, dad? Some dads and moms here, what do you do in that moment, you know? Well, I did the most compassionate thing I could think of. I grabbed the bunny. I said, I can tell this thing's just, it's gasping. It's in misery, and the lights are going out soon for this little baby bunny. And I took it around the corner, and I said, I made the kids stay in the, in the house. And in the most compassionate way I could think of, as fast as I could, I dispatched its life. Um, I don't relish that day. I'm not, I'm not, I don't love that I did that. But I, I would do that again because it was the compassionate thing to do. Unfortunately, it became known forever as the day Dad stomped a baby bunny to death. Uh, not something, I mean, I can still feel it under my left heel, right? So, like, you have these traumatic things. They, they sink into your soul. I can still feel that baby bunny. But let's say you were here however many years ago it was when I gave that illustration and came to me today and said, Roger, I've got a question for you, and it's a yes or no answer, okay? I just need to know yes or no. Very simple. Yes or no. Have you stopped stomping baby bunnies? Now, what do I answer? I'm stuck if I have to give you a yes or no, because if I say, yes, I've stopped stomping baby bunnies, it communicates that this was a regular way of life for me, that I kind of even revel in. It was like, a, you know, a dead addiction I needed to break, stomping baby bunnies. That's what happens if I say yes. If I say no, it seems like I'm still stomping baby bunnies, and I have a couple to do this afternoon, right? So, uh, and so if I'm required to give a yes or no answer to that, what do, I, what do I do? I don't engage it. I refuse to engage it because to engage it communicates an untruth about me. It communicates something wrong about me, namely that I'm a stumper of baby bunnies or something like that. Um, I try to pick the illustration that was least offensive to everybody and real at the same time. So I don't know how I did, but uh, that's where we are. And it's a true story. Uh, and I don't stop baby bunnies, all the qualifiers. But if you said yes or no, have you stopped stomping baby bunnies, that's actually a position that gets me wrong from the beginning. It's a, if you're going to be in that posture and demand that response, in some ways you're not seeing me accurately. And if I dignify that question with a response, I'm telling you an untruth about me. So it would, be a, it would be communicating something untrue about me. So I would choose to not engage in that trap question. That is a dynamic that's happening in the passage we're looking at today. This might be a familiar passage to you. This is the trial of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We often look at this at Easter time or, uh, or Good Friday. 
but we happen to be doing it in July because we're moving through the Gospel of Luke, and we are into the deepest valley of the darkest part. This week, the week after this, and next week, we have the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Today, it's the trial. Last week, if you remember, it was the place where Jesus got arrested in the garden of Gethsemane when he was praying, and these guards come and descend on him, and his disciples are like brandishing swords, like, should we fight now, Jesus? In fact, Peter jumps into the crowd and stabs the high priest's uh, servant named Malchus in the head, and it cuts off his ear. Remember that? Jesus picks up the ear maybe and heals him and says, no more of this. No more of this. Matthew, Matthew records that Jesus says, don't you know I could call uh, 12 legions of angels right now? That's 72,000 angels or at my beck and call, but I'm not. I'm actually not going to engage this situation like that. Jesus turns to those who came to arrest him and basically says, I, you know this is a scam. I know this is a scam, but, and this is the phrase from last week, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Or it could be translated, the hour and the power of darkness is yours. Something real, dark, vile is going on here. It is evil. It's an effect of sin in this world. This is happening. Jesus says, but we're not going to fight. We're not going to respond. We're not going to engage. And in this passage, we see that that hour and power of darkness casts deep shadows on the rest of this trial. And Jesus still doesn't engage. And most of the time, we read, you know, we've been moving through the Gospel of Luke saying, okay, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus teach? Today, we're going to actually look at what he doesn't say and what he doesn't teach and how he doesn't respond. But this is maybe what we would expect from the prophet Isaiah. Taylor read the first six verses of Isaiah 53, this prophecy of the Messiah, But check out verse 7. I put it in your insert, I think. I don't have it up here. But I put it in your insert. Uh, Verse 7 says this. He, this Messiah, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then it continues. uh, Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And then verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he, the Messiah, had done no violence and no deceit was found in his mouth. So in three verses you got this, he didn't open his mouth, he didn't open his mouth, no deceit was found in his mouth. Here's why I think this is saying. Had Jesus in this trial, and we'll see this, begun to make a defense, it would have somehow been deceit. Because he would have been communicating something untrue about himself. Because the questions they were pushing on him were something like, Hey, Roger, have you stopped stomping baby bunnies? They're trap questions. They're questions of darkness. They're patterns of darkness. And so I want to walk through this passage and identify, what is that pattern of darkness coming through there? But then I want to go one step farther and say, how does that same pattern show up in our life? How does that same pattern show up in our life? Because either, so if you're, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it could well be that that pattern of darkness that we're going to see is actually preventing you from seeing Jesus. Because just like the question asked to me is like assuming something that can't be true about me, you're, that, that 
that posture is preventing you from seeing Jesus. But if you are in Christ and those patterns of darkness are in our life, as they almost certainly are, it prevents us from seeing Jesus too and enjoying him and having fellowship with him and having the depth of experience that he died to give us with him. So we want to be real honest. And because we just came from confession, as, as Taylor said, we're free. In Christ, we're free. Jesus has paid for our sin. We start with a position of being at peace with God. Therefore, we can allow him to expose what's in our soul that might be keeping us from enjoying him. So let's see if we can't do that here. Luke 22, verse 63, we're bridging a chapter. You may know this, the chapter and verse divisions were not in the original. Chapter divisions came in in maybe the 13th century, verse divisions in the 1550s, right? So think how much easier it is now because we have chapter and verses. I can say, look at Luke twenty-two sixty-three, for instance. Here's the context. Jesus has been arrested. They took him to the high priest's house. In the middle of the night, which was technically illegal, if you remember, the, the government then was a collaboration between Romans and Jews. The Romans were really in charge, but they wanted the Jews not to revolt, so they let the Jews be in, have some authority, especially on trial authority. They wanted them to try things at their Jewish courts first. So Jesus is arrested, and he's taken to the high priest of the Jewish people, Caiaphas, in the middle of the night. That's where Peter denies him three times. Jesus looks across the courtyard at that third denial. Last week we said it's almost certainly a look of love and compassion, and then Peter runs out weeping for his sin, and here's where the story picks up. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So They put a blindfold on him and like, oh, Jesus, if you're a prophet, tell us some truth here. Who just hit you, prophet? If you were really a prophet, then you would name the guard that hit you. Do it again. Hit him in the face again. Jesus, you claim to be a prophet. If you're a prophet, then you'll do this. Right? It's mockery. Now, probably, if you're here right now, you're spending your Sunday morning in a worship gathering, it's likely... At least at this point in our life, we're not engaged in that kind of mockery of Jesus. Maybe in the past we were. But it is not uncommon in our world. In fact, it's so common, it can become kind of discouraging for the people of God. If, you know, and you hear it, you can hear it from wherever. You hear it from teachers and politicians and philosophers. And if God, like, you have a lot of conditions that they want to put on God. If God is good and if God is loving, then there would be no evil in the world. There's evil in the world, therefore, right? It's a, making a demanding condition put upon God. And I wish some of those public intellectuals that just are so mocking. Some of you, there's an astrophysicist I really like, and he's probably a really kind guy named Neil deGrasse Tyson. Have you remember Neil deGrasse Tyson? Right? He's really brilliant. I'm sure he's a really nice guy. He's an incredible mocker of Christianity, right? Um, so he's, he's got a lot of upside, but that's not one of them. And uh, sometimes I just think, I wish somebody like Neil deGrasse Tyson would have this tremendous conversion experience and go from mocking Jesus to worshiping Jesus publicly. But it happens so rarely. Why is that? From a position of mocking, we cannot see. It's, it's simple but hard truth. It's unlikely because in a mocking position, it's very hard to see. 
Now, again, we may be not mocked so much, but I do find myself, at least implicitly, being willing to give God conditions he needs to operate by in my life. Now, I clean it up a little bit and say something like, it's, it's more implicit. I don't say this out loud, maybe because I know not to do this because I'm a preacher. But um, if I pray this way, then God, you will fill in the blank. If I do this, then you will do this. Um, you know, I think I've, I've did that with uh, New City for years. Lord, if I pray this way, if I do this thing, then this is what this church will look like and you will do this. Turns out God is a little more unmanageable than that. But this is exactly, it's, it's a cleaned up, softer version of doing what the guards would do. If you are like this, then you will do this. Maybe we say to ourselves or say to the Lord, Lord, if I'm in this, I'll give up. I'll give two more years to this job, and I'll do it really hard, and then I will get a promotion. That seems like giving conditions. I will become, I will become the model spouse, and then my spouse will change, Lord. That's the agreement I have with you. <laughs> Maybe. I will become content in my singleness, and then you will bring me the man or woman of my dreams. Maybe. But we have to understand, like, that might be giving God conditions to operate by. And from that perspective, it sometimes becomes very hard to see him. And, very, and, and it's actually a grace that he resists responding to us when we do that. Kind of like if, you're, if you have a, a younger kid who, you know, you, let's say they come to the table and it's lunchtime and they're a little bit hungry, and you are intending to get them lunch, it's actually you're moving toward the refrigerator to get them lunch, and your eight-year-old son says, Dad, give me lunch right now. What do you do? I think you get your own lunch out of the fridge and sit down and eat in front of him. I don't know. Um, because if you, if you allow that child to be demanding to you in the second and respond to him in that demanding, you're actually teaching something wrong about him and you, right? Now, you probably would clean it up. I know that. But uh, it's a grace that it's hard to see Jesus for us when we're giving conditions to him. When day came, verse 66, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. So they took him to the probably called the Sanhedrin, that's sort of the chief Jewish court of the, of the place in daylight now, because now it's legal. And they're like, they, they make a request that's actually not a request. If you're the Christ, tell us. And Jesus says, no. If I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I asked you questions to lead you to the logical conclusion, like I just did a couple chapters ago, you'll say, well, we're not answering your questions. I'm not going to talk to you about this because your mind is made up. The other, another pattern of darkness that shadows this is uh, these Jewish leaders have their mind made up about Jesus. And they're asking him questions that aren't really questions. If you're the Christ, which we know you're not, tell us. We don't want to know if you're the Christ. We just want to have a grounds to convict you on. It's very hard to see Jesus when our mind is made up, when we come to him. Very hard. 
I don't know how many times you've prayed if you're in a conflict with another person, be that a good friend or a co-worker, maybe a spouse. I know how easy it is to pray, basically, Lord, help Carmen to see how wrong she is in this situation. But I just need her to see that. Now, two problems with that. One, if you know my wife, how, you know how stupid of a prayer that is. Generally, it's not going to be the issue. But here, what's the other problem when we're praying for the, God to help the other person see? Or even like we could spiritualize it. Lord, help me to be loving, to respond well when my spouse is acting in such a terrible way. My mind is made up about one thing, that I am not in the wrong at all. Instead, perhaps, we say, Lord, help me to see here. What does it look like to actually pursue peace in this relationship? You died for me. You died for me for a reason. My sin and my blindness. Help me, you know, heal my blindness to my own sin. Help me to see. It's, it's very hard to see and hear from the Lord when our mind is made up about everything. Sometimes we have our plans and we ask God to just bless them. It's kind of like we just, you know, we got our, our book. Lord, here it is. Here's my agenda. Here it is. I'm going to pray. And, and because I'm your son, uh, I'm going to pray and you're going to bless what I have to do. And my mind is made up that this is right and all you need to do is carry it out. And we know we do this sometimes because we get frustrated with the Lord when he does not respond. Or maybe we don't even engage in prayer sometimes. This is me. I don't engage in prayer because I'm afraid he might thwart my will. Here's what Jesus says. This is as much as he gives right here in the whole passage. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's a reference to Psalm 110, where it's a picture of the Messiah ascending to the throne, taking his rightful place at the right hand, the executive seat of power in the universe, from which Jesus reigns right now. So Jesus is saying, here's all you're going to get. I am the exalted one. I will be the exalted one. I remember, it must have been my oldest child's eighth grade graduation from the Oaks Academy, small classical school, and the graduation was held at Tabernacle Presbyterian Church, which is this long, narrow sanctuary with pews that are about like eight inches from each other. I guess people were a lot skinnier 150 years ago when they built those that building. But anyway, so I remember that we sat behind a family uh, named the Smith family, all of whom, including mom, was over six feet tall. And, so, and then like four brothers, there's just wall of shoulders in front of us. And uh, I'm like, not quite that tall. And so I'm sitting there with my wife, who's also not quite that tall. We're like, we've paid so many thousands of dollars for the school, we're not even going to get our, to see our kid graduate, right? So like if, we just figured, though, if they didn't move, there was like one angle. We both had to lean away from each other, but there's one angle from which we could see the happenings. And that was it. We didn't get to choose the angle we could see it from. It was chosen for us. We could choose to look at the the proceedings through that angle or not. What this passage is simply telling us, there is one perspective where we see Jesus clearly from, and that is from below. He is the exalted one. When we see him as that, we see him truthfully. We see him clearly. If you have a Bible and want to turn to Isaiah 66, um, well, I just read it. Isaiah 66, this is a great passage. 
Verse 1 and 2, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So as you're saying, look, what are you going to give to me that's impressive? I made everything. You're just giving it back. It's mine. I made it. What would impress the Lord here, Isaiah is asking? This is great. It's so easy. This is the one to whom I will look. And that is like, who gets my face. That's the intimacy language. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who gets to see me clearly? The one who looks up at me. That's the angle we get to see him clearly from. Back in Luke Verse 70, so they all said, are you the son of God then? (laughs) I don't know how they said it, but are you the son of God? I don't know the, the intensity with which they said it. And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now, what is being communicated here? This gives translators lots of issues. You say that I am. We, we think what Jesus is saying is like, yeah, that's what you say. That's what you say. That's what you would say. The problem is the, these leaders have a, this phrase, the Son of God, has a lot of things packed into it for them. It has, you know, the nation of Israel rising to prominence in the world and overcoming everything. That's what the Son of God, that's what the Messiah will do. This is, if you say you're Messiah, this is what you will do. Are you Messiah? And Jesus is like, I have that title is true. But all your prepackaged definitions need some work. It would be like if um, somebody came to your home. Now, let's say you were doing, I shouldn't make this up on the fly. Let's say you're doing prison ministry. You went and did some prison evangelism. And you're talking in the lunchroom with a guy who's a former uh, head of a a mafia crime family. And he says, uh, Daryl Cap just did our our prayer, our elder Daryl. He says, Daryl. Are you the head of your family? Are you the head of your family, Daryl? They say it like that. And uh, Daryl would say, I know what he means by that. He could say, well, Jesus is the head of my family, and I'm, I'm trying to lead under Christ by serving them and sacrifice myself for them. Or he could say, um, I suppose that's what you would say. Even though this crime boss has a whole lot of preloaded definitions for what that means to be the head of the family. It is true that Daryl would be the head of his family, but not like that. Okay, that's what I think has happened here. And then he does it again in the very next passage. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor. So these, these leaders are like, ha, we got him. Now we'll take him to the people that can execute him. Pilate has authority to do that. So they began to accuse him. They took him to Pilate and said, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Well, that's not what he did. He actually said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Doesn't matter. Darkness doesn't play by the rules. They're just lying. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Has he said this? Well, they just said that he said that. 
Right? They're trying to set it up like this Jesus Pilate, you've got to take him out because he's in competition with Caesar, who's the emperor. And if you allow this guy to be in competition with Caesar, the emperor, you will be in trouble. In verse 3, and Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, you've said so. It's the same thing. Yeah, Pilate, that's what you would say. For you it may be packaged with all this kind of meaning. But all the definition you're giving to it is not the definition that I'm filling out. There's such, such deception in this whole thing. And Jesus is just pushing back. You know, when we give God definitions of who he is that come preloaded in our mind, that he has to fill out, it becomes very hard to see him. So, are you a provider, Lord? Yes, I'm a provider. Well, if we bring to that definition, well, therefore, I really need that third car and I don't have the income for it. Or therefore, you said you provide and I need a bigger house, you know. Or therefore... You said you provide, but boy, the stock market's taking a dip. How can you be a provider? Right, we're giving him. So I could say, are you a provider? And he was like, well, that's what you would say, but you're filling it out with a definition that's super unhelpful here. And it's going to get very hard to see me. God, are you a deliverer? Uh, yes, I am. Good. That means that you will never let me go through anything hard whatsoever. Or if I see something hard on the horizon, you'll, you'll snap it out right away. Instead of actually what it means is I will go through you, go with you through almost everything and bring you through on the other side. That's what it means to be a deliverer. We, I do this all the time to the Lord. I just give him definitions, right? Um, are you a comforter? Yes or no? Are you a comforter who doesn't allow me to have any pain and comforts me by never allowing any discomfort? I actually am not that kind of comforter. <laughs> right, are you a comforter? Yes. Well, good. That means you comfort me and I do nothing to engage you whatsoever. That's not the kind of comforter he is. When we give him definitions that he has to fill out instead of going to him for the definitions, it becomes very hard to see him. We, um, by the way, we do this all the time with the theological category of God's sovereignty and omniscience. All the time. God Is God sovereign over everything? Yes, he is. Every molecule, it's not a stray molecule, atom, quark, uh, piece of dark matter, which aren't, isn't even in pieces in the universe. How does that all work together? We have no idea. God's far bigger than us. But functionally, we believe God's sovereignty means he's sovereign and he will explain everything that we, so we can understand it. And if we don't understand something, we're like, well, I'm not sure I can trust his sovereignty. It becomes hard to see him. Verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priests, we're almost done even though we're less than halfway through the passage, I promise you. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. Uh, so Pilate was on, uh, he had two strikes in the Roman government. He was not a good leader, actually. He was too strong. He, he chose to use military force, we know from history, in places he shouldn't have in his younger days, and he tended to kill people when he should have just made peace. And so he'd been moved, and he's now governor over this region, but he's 
basically got one more strike and he's gone. And so he's trying to keep the peace like as much as possible. He's like, I don't want this guy executed. No, I find no guilt in him. And so the Jews say, he's been stirring us up all over from Galilee to Judea. And he said, wait, from where? Galilee? Oh, cool. Why does that mean? Galilee was a northern province over whom Herod was the governor. Herod was under Pilate, but Herod uh, was supposed to take care of it. He's like, cool. Being a good politician, he's like, I'm not responsible for this at all. Herod happened to be in Jerusalem. He's like, oh, go send it to Herod to have him deal with it. Verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he had belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. Herod is the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded, and back in Luke 7, it said, when he heard about Jesus, he was interested. He's like, ah, maybe this is John the Baptist come back from the dead or something. Maybe he'll do a miracle for me. So he brings Jesus in like a, like a party trick. Jesus, do a healing, huh? And he asks him, can you, you know, probably ask him questions about, can you do healing? Can you really do healing? Let me see you do healing. If you're this, then you'll do healing. Here's how Jesus responds to everything Herod put to him. Verse 9, so he questioned him at some length. But Jesus made no answer. I'm not going to dignify this with a response, is Jesus' response. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. So the contempt was there all the time, right? He treated Jesus with contempt, treated him lightly, did not take him seriously from the beginning. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. The final, like, shadow of darkness here, well, not the final one, but the one final one we'll look at is just contempt and lightness. When we are actually functionally disinterested in taking Jesus seriously. Um... When we believe Jesus doesn't have anything to say about how we interact with somebody with whom we're in conflict with. As if he never says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As if Jesus never has anything to say about um, how we steward our bodies or our finance or our time. If we've been walking with Jesus for some time and have never brought him into those areas, it is going to become very hard to see him clearly. Verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Trying to keep it down, right? Because, so, um, um, 
I, I think I do need to tell you this. Matthew says, uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, records that it was typical at Passover to, for the Romans to release one person who had been condemned to death. Maybe as a sign, like in, in the Passover celebration, Jewish feast, death passes over. Maybe death passes over one person. It was a way for the Romans to keep the peace. You'll notice in your text, it goes from verse 16 to verse 18. There's no verse 17. Why is that? I'll tell you this. There's a, there's a whole school of study called uh, textual study, textual criticism. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. What would happen in the early centuries is the Scripture would get copied, you know, and sometimes there would be a margin note made, and there were no verse numbers. So if somebody, you're copying something, and you leave out a verse, oh, you go back and put it in the margin. Also what would be in the margin is little notes like, oh, you know, it's like a little study Bible note. Like, oh, there was, they released one person. So in some manuscripts, after time went on, apparently this little note in the margin got put in. And then in 1551, when the verses were put in, they included it as verse 17. And then some years later, they discovered earlier manuscripts that didn't have that in there. Like, oh, we see what happened. Now, it's, so it, there's probably a, if you have a Bible, there's a footnote that says, some manuscripts have this little phrase here. You know, Pilate released one person. That's how it happened. That actually should help you trust your scriptures because there's such science of going back and getting the earliest manuscripts. There's, and so the, like, there's less than 1% variation, and it's not about any big doctrines. But I didn't want you to think oh, I just skipped verse 17 left it out because it was somehow inconvenient. It's really just not there anymore. It's gone because it never was there. Okay. So Pilate's like, I'll tell you what. Yeah, okay, fine. He's a criminal, but I'll release him. I'll release him. Should be copacetic for everybody. Cool, right? But they all cried out together, no, away, for, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. I mean, the worst they just said about Jesus is he said, don't pay your taxes. Kill this guy, let out the guy who started a revolution and kill people. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. How did those voices, which a week ago when Jesus rides into the city say, uh, you know, hallelujah, glory to God in the highest, how do they turn into crucify him? Answer, they're not the same voices. This is happening first thing in the morning. The political machinery has been moving all night long. That is a packed crowd who has one thing in mind, and that is the execution of Jesus. Is that just? No. But evil doesn't play fair. Darkness doesn't care about being proper. It seeks a way. It seeks, it sought a way in this passage, and it had its way for a season. It seeks its way in our life, and it has a way in our life. Verse 25, so Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. When we see the patterns of darkness in our own life, what do we do? Well, you know, if you've been here enough, the answer is not do better. Try harder. 
It is simple. It is simply turn to Jesus and embrace the grace that has been embraced for you by him. What in this passage tells us that we are completely free to do that? Barabbas, a guilty man, goes free because Jesus takes his place. Barabbas was not the only guilty person to go free. You, friends, me, guilty persons who have gone free. Because Jesus, when that crowd cried out, crucify him, crucify him, did not engage. But he submitted himself to that. So he would stand in our place, and we would be freed because of it. So we have the courage, because we're in him now, to see the worst about us, knowing that he's already taken care of it. And we can turn from it to him, to have relationship and fellowship restored. It's an imprecise science. We're just looking for our sin and allowing him to convict us of it and turn to him with hope. Every week after the end here, we come in hope to the table. This picture of grace abundantly available for the people of God. So, if you're in Christ Jesus, I want to invite you to consider coming to the table. Um, We would encourage you, however, if you're in unresolved conflict with another person in the body of Christ and you haven't tried to resolve it, to go first be reconciled and then come to the table next week. It's not uncommon for people not to take communion in the New City community. Uh, I'm going to, after I pray, I'm going to invite you to go. uh, We'll come get your bread and cup slowly, patiently. Uh, There's a table back here, back here, up here, up here. Come get the bread and the cup, return to your seat, and we'll all take the elements together. Lord Jesus, uh, that was a whirlwind, maybe a minor theme and a major passage, but I pray for the power of your Spirit to show us places where we can't see you well because we adopt a posture that prevents it. By the power of your Spirit, may we turn. As we come to the table, we know that there is grace available for us. And you actually desire to show yourself to us as you really are. So thank you that we can now come to this table. In Christ's name.